Welcome to the Deepwater Podcast. I'm Dave Mercer. I'm James Judd. And our goal on this podcast is to learn to make disciples the way Jesus made disciples. Yes, sir. Thanks for joining us on another episode. Glad you're here today. Today I want to talk about the topic of cross-cultural disciple-making. That's an interesting topic, and we actually do that way more than we think we do. I want to talk to you about a couple of those things. This was kind of spurred on yesterday. I got to go to a prison ministry, and I got to watch their their last thing that they do. It's called their closing. The ministry's Kairos. If you go back and look earlier in our episodes, we had an interview with a man named Chester Kimber, and he works with Kairos. So anyway, we got to go in there and, and watch it, and I was watching several things, but as I was seeing it, and it was pretty cool. You're hearing some of the stories of what God had done in their life that weekend, and it was pretty cool. But we also, you could see differences in cultures. Some, you could see the difference of the culture of like, okay, these guys are in the prison, and there's a culture in there. But then even inside that, you could see different ethnicities, different groups, different ways and how they acted, how they talked, how they responded. It was all different. And that made me think about cross-cultural disciple-making, and that's what I wanted to visit with you about. Now, normally when we think about cross-cultural disciple-making, we picture, you know, I'm an American, he's Chinese, we're a different culture. I'm an American, he's from South Africa, we're a different culture. Or, you know, I've got this international student, they come to our church, we're a different culture. But one of the things that was really great pointed out by a book called Contagious Disciple Making, which I've said before and I highly recommend. They said, you know, if you've been a Christian for two years, you are no longer the same culture as those around you that are not Christians. Now think about that. Two years, your culture has changed enough. That's assuming you've been active. Hopefully someone has discipled you. But if you've just been active in church, you know, the vocabulary you use, the way you use your time the things you do and don't do for fun, all of those things have changed, and it's a cross-culture. Now, sometimes we can, and we well, we're just unaware of this. Sometimes we think, well, you know, I'm from, he's from New York, and I'm from New Mexico. You know, we get that the cultures might be a little different. He's East Coast, I'm Southwest, he's from New York, I'm from the best state in America. You know, things like that. We'll tend to, uh, we can understand that. But we don't really think about it like, oh, in my hometown where I grew up, I'm no longer the same culture as the non-believers in that town. There are some differences in that. And that's not necessarily bad nor not necessarily good. It's just something that you need to know so that when you disciple, you can really make a disciple. And there's some problems with cross-cultural disciple making, especially if you don't realize it's cross-cultural. The first thing is, is just stuff gets lost in translation. I see this a lot in people that have never worked with internationals, and all of a sudden they're working with someone whose second language is English. And I, I've, I learned it by mistakes, by doing it myself. I remember one of the first times I went overseas, we were teaching English, but basically we were just, it was conversation. And I'd get, they'd ask me a question, and I'd get excited about it, and I'd start talking. And all of a sudden I'd look out there, and like all, the, all their eyes were glazed over. And I could tell they didn't understand a single word I was saying, or maybe a few words here or there, but they had no idea of the meaning. 
it was lost in translation. And so if we're discipling someone whose second language is English, we have to really slow things down. You've got to take all of your cliches out. You've got to take most of your spiritual language and simplify it. You know, we're not talking uh, propitiate, propitiation. We're not talking sanctification. We're talking like God set me apart. Or we think that Jesus, he didn't just cover our sin, he took it away. You know, like you got to use almost the way you would define the word. You have to use that because if you're a second language, you're trying hard to just, just keep it. The other thing, like when it's English to English, Sometimes things like, I understand all the words you said, but I did not get the meaning. Sometimes, and I've experienced this personally, it's something written out. I can read all the words and I can look them all up in the dictionary and I do not know what you're talking about. And it's lost in a cultural translation or we think, oh, yeah, here's my next door neighbor. He decides he's interested in Jesus or I invite him to church and what he hears is all these really holy words, all these big words that we don't use in everyday life. And he's like, I'm confused. And, you know, none of us like to look dumb for the most part. And so you're like, do you understand what? Um, right now I'm drawing a blank on all my big religious words. Use sanctification again. Do you understand that you've been sanct- you'll be sanctified? And he's like, uh, mm-hmm. You just kind of make this, or what I learned when I was overseas was to kind of give this grunt that like neither confirmed nor denied what you said. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Mm? That's a good one. Yeah, you know, you can take it whatever way. Mm? So the point is, is things get lost in cultural translation. I'm saying one thing and you're hearing another thing. What we're trying to do in disciple making is we're trying to make disciples of Jesus. And we're not trying to make disciples of our Christian culture. Does that make sense? I remember from the first time I went overseas, there was this fella, and he had grown up on the field in Africa. Real interesting guy, then had been a, a missionary as well himself. But he was telling me about when he grew up on the field, and I, I grew up Southern Baptist, and he was the same. And he said, they're over there with this people, and all the people live in round huts, and and they sing with drums and dancing. And he said, then they would go into their church that we had planted, and it was a nice square church. They had these pews they sat on, and they sang these, like, very American hymns. And at the front of the church, there was a table that said, in remembrance of me, in English. You know, and he was just, he's making the point to us that, at that point in time, that was kind of what, what missions was, or we, we hadn't thought about like contextualizing it or, or letting it be in their culture. So saying the same thing, what we're trying to do when we disciple somebody is not change their culture into our Christian culture. We want to change their culture into the Christian culture that Jesus designed to fit in their culture. I think a real easy way to think about that or understand it is with, with worship. If you're an African guy, man from Africa, and you love drums, and you're writing a worship song, it's going to sound like the country you're from. If you're from the southwest part of America, like I am, and I write a worship song, it's probably going to sound like the area I'm from. That's kind of how it is. And in one sense, we got to understand, like, the command is to worship. How are they? How are they going to do that? Some of that gets to be determined by them. So in order to disciple someone cross-culturally. And I hope by now we understand that basically anyone you're discipling, unless they've grown up in the church, 
same type of church, same area as you, and just have never been discipled. With the exception of that, almost anyone you disciple is going to be cross-cultural, especially any new believer. Almost guarantee it's going to be cross-cultural. So this fits for everyone. And there's four things I want to give you that will help you a lot in discipling cross-culturally. Number one is you need a very high reliance on the Scripture. And if you're in America, for the most part, we have Scriptures. That's not a problem. And thankfully, there are so many Scriptures available online, even like version, the app you can download. They have tons of different languages there. So even if you have an international student and they're they're studying with you, you can many, many times you can find a a Bible in their language, and that helps them study. And, and you've got to let God, God's Word is amazing. It says it's sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide bones and marrow. We need that kind of sword penetrating their life. Now, if there's no, no scripture in the person's language, then that has to be a really high priority. How can you get it in there? And that may very well involve donating to um, organizations like Wycliffe, SIL, some of those that specialize in Bible translation. Maybe you could be an impetus in towards them being able to get somebody in and disciple somebody in that language, or sorry, translate the Bible into that language. Another thing that's really important is, especially if you're dealing with an English speaker, maybe they're here as a from another country, and they're, of course, trying to improve their language. Or even if you're in a different country and that person speaks English, and maybe their English is better than your whatever language they speak, it's still really important that they read the Bible in their heart language. So even if I study with them, we may have the entire study in English. But when it comes time to read the read the Bible, I'm going to make them study the Bible. I want to make them read it in their language. And they may have pushback and they may say, oh, it's okay, I understand enough of English. I'm going to say, I don't care. When God speaks to you, he's probably going to use your language. And it's best if they hear it in their language. Now, they can compare back and forth, or if they want to read them, I'll read it first in English, and then you read it in your language. Either one of those is okay, but it's it's so important that they have a clear understanding of what's being said. We don't want major things being lost in translation. So rely on the Scripture, and the beautiful thing about the Scripture, and if you really rely on it, is you don't have to solve all the problems. You don't have to interpret how they should obey that command. You just have to say, Here, here's the Bible. This is what the Bible says. Or if there's a question you can't answer, but you can think of a scripture. Or if there's something you're trying to say and they just don't understand it, no, many, no matter how many times you reword it, they just don't understand it. Then you can point to this scripture. We read that. Do you understand that? They're like, yes. Okay, do it. And I remember sometimes in my early language learning days that I would be in these kind of situations and someone would get to that thing and... I'd show them a verse and they'd say, okay, or they might say like, oh, do you mean blah, 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 of which I would get mostly nothing. And I'd say, are you talking what this says here? And I'd point to it and they'd say, yes. And I'd say, yes, that's what it is. Whatever this says here, you can trust it. You can rely on it. And what you really want, you really want them to learn to rely on scriptures, not rely on you. You don't want them to learn to rely on you as this great biblical scholar who has all this deep, in-depth knowledge. Because what if something happens to you? What if they go back to their country? But if you teach them to rely on the Bible, and you go back and you say, hey, well, let's see what the Bible says about that. And you build that foundation into their life that, man, when I have a problem, I go to the Bible and see what the answers are. 
that serves them the rest of their life, whether you're involved in it or not. And that ties into the number two thing is you need to really you need to really rely on obedience. So many times in the West we focus on knowledge. And knowledge is important. You have to know things. But what's more important is obeying the knowledge that you have. One of the best ways to do this in a cross-cultural environment is when you study a story and you can ask some questions, some questions I like, you know, what does this teach you about God? What's it teach you about mankind? There's another one. There's something called speca. Is there a sin to sin to avoid, a promise to claim, an example to follow or not example, a command to obey, a knowledge that you need to know, or and then an application. All these different things that are just some basic questions that you could get, and you could make sure they were clear on what those means, and you guys could discuss that. But then in the end, you come to the end of your Bible study. It comes down to this. What do you need to change in your life to align it with the Scripture? How do you need to obey? And you let them, especially in a cross-cultural environment, you let them flesh that out. And it may not look the way you think it would, but let them flesh that out a little bit because there's so many times that we really do not understand what all goes on in their culture. Never, We're never going to get it the way they get it. But the Bible is beautiful, and the Bible, again, is able to divide soul and marrow, sharper than a two-edged sword, and it can go into any culture every culture, and it can navigate that culture, and it can confirm, conform that culture into the image of Christ. It can take out the parts it wants to take out. It can leave the part it wants to leave. It can modify the things that just need modified into God's goodness and God's grace. And so when we teach obedience, and it, it makes them do that. It makes them answer that question. And that doesn't mean you can't have some discussions with them. And, you know, if they throw a really... You say, well, how do you obey this? And their answer is just really off the wall. A good follow-up question is like, okay, tell me, help, me, help me understand where you see that in this scripture. And it may be there, and you just didn't notice it. I remember a time I was meeting with uh, some guys from West Africa, and we were doing a Bible study. We were doing a story of Jacob when he fled from uh, his brother Esau. And the thing that really struck them that day in that Bible study, which I didn't intend at all, it was a, it was about tithing. At the end, Jacob says, and I will give you a tenth of everything I have. And for them, that was this big issue, and some of it was based on some of the churches they'd been in and wanting to know how that affected it. And for me, it was kind of like it was just this minor thing. I mean, everything in the Scripture is important, but that wasn't the focus that I thought we would get out of the story, but it was the focus they got out of the story, and so then we needed to deal with that because that's what was important. And they were able to see, like, man, in my culture, I need to understand this part of the story and how that fits in. So rely on obedience. Let them let them interpret that. Let them figure out how to obey it. And if it's really off, you know, or if, or if sometimes there's something, if they're a new believer especially, or just not familiar with the Scripture, they may have some kind of obedience, and you might have to say, you know, I, I totally understand what you're getting that, but let me, before you obey it that way, let me just show you this passage over here, because you haven't read this passage yet, so I want you to understand it. And sometimes you can put things back in place that they need like, need like that. But it's so key that we teach obedience. And that's true even when we're discipling with our same culture. Obedience doesn't trump everything, but it trumps almost everything. John fourteen twenty one says, He who has my commands and obeys them is the one who loves me. It's important. Jesus said it was important. Let's make it important. Number three, the third thing you need is you need reliance on them to push it into their culture. And what I mean by that is is we've identified that there are different cultures. 
we there's some cultures that we can work our way into. I can move to Oklahoma City and I can work my way into that culture or into a group of of there. I could I can move to New York City maybe and work my way into different parts of that culture. But there's some cultures that no matter what I do, no matter how hard I try, I'll always be an outsider. Always. I remember a story. This was a man, uh, I think from Europe somewhere, and what he had married a Chinese woman way back in some of the time when Americans couldn't even go to China. He got married, and he had lived in this same district of Beijing for like 40 years. And he was still referred to as the old foreigner. You know, he was still an outsider. That long, living there in that place, probably had beautiful Chinese by then. Was he an insider? No, he was an outsider. And that's true. There's some cultures, no matter what happens, you're never going to really be that culture. It's easy to understand, you know, I will never be a Chinese man. I'll never be a Japanese man. What I can be is a beloved outsider. Sometimes we think with our own culture, some maybe you could adjust to, some you couldn't. You know, where I'm from, there's a lot of cowboys, and cowboys have a culture. There's a culture, and you can be you can be like a, a, a culture that likes cowboys, like you can be a trucker, and cow- cowboys and truckers seem to get along, but you're still not a, you're not a cowboy. And having grown up on a ranch, I know that there was a lot, there was a very, very fine, like we define like who is a cowboy and who isn't a cowboy, and we know who's pretending and who's not. And yeah, there's a few people that come in and they they really jump into that culture and eventually they become that culture. But for the most part, you're just an outsider, unless that's your love of your life. Or for me, if I wanted to become like a skater punk culture, boy, that would be a stretch for me. I'm probably never going to fully make it into that culture or a music band culture. I'm not I'm not super musical, so I'll probably never make it into that culture. But I can be a respected outsider. And what we want is for them to be able to take the good news of Jesus into their culture. And we do that by not pulling them out. There's times when we lead someone to Christ and we're like, oh, that culture you're in, it is so horrible. Like, let me give you a list of a hundred things they're doing that offends God right now. And that might be a short list. And so you say, man, what we need to do is we need to pull you out into our safe church culture over here. But if we do that, by the time, you know, we, we pull them out, we get their life all straightened out, we get them all clean, sober, everything, they, they're theologically ready, and we're like, you need to go back to your old friends. Well, now they go back to their old friends, and their friends are like, where have you been, and who are you now? I don't even recognize you. You just dropped us all. You walked off and left us like you didn't even care. Why should I listen to you now? But if you let them live in that culture, and you say, hey, listen, I know I'm an outsider, but let me come in with you. Let's go into your culture and and I want you to live out a man that loves Jesus and follows Jesus inside your skater punk culture or inside your cowboy culture or inside your American-born Chinese culture or inside your African-American culture or your Hispanic culture. I mean, you name it, your Puerto Rican culture. There's so many inside your old white person that retired to Florida and talks about their medical conditions all the time. You go live out Jesus inside that. And when we do that, you can bring the gospel into an area. And it's great. Like if you if you let some of the Lord and you pull them out, that's okay. Like they still believed. But if you really want to reach a culture, pulling them out is not the way to do that. And I know for Americans, there's a, a couple of things we, we don't like. One is we don't like suffering. We don't like hardship. And I'm as guilty as the rest of men. If I could, if I can save somebody some hardship, boy, I'm going to do it. 
And it's hard for me to leave somebody in a hard situation when I know it's hard and I know, oh, we can just pull them out. But the truth is, is that God doesn't have that problem. And we see in Scripture, a lot of times he leaves people. He puts people in incredibly hard situations and he leaves them there. And he's, he's with them there. But he doesn't pull them out. He doesn't rescue them. One of my good friends said once about Joseph, you know, every one of us here, if we'd had the power, we would have, we would have pulled Joseph out of that prison when he got arrested for supposedly assaulting Potiphar's wife. We'd have pulled him out and we'd have messed, we'd have killed all the Jews. We'd have all sent them out to famine so they'd have all died. Sometimes that's a true thing with people we work with. I have a number of friends right now in the country we used to live in that are facing a pretty hard coming time. Maybe it'll change, but it looks like things are going to get more difficult for them. And as much as I would like to pull them out, I know and believe that God can use them best where they are at. And if something happens and one of them gets an opportunity and they move to the States, I'm not going to look down on them for that. But at the same time, I'm not going to be going around uh, building GoFundMe pages and filling out their visa application for them unless God has specifically told me. It's okay for people to deal with hardship. And it doesn't make you cruel. What's better is that if you will dwell with them in that. And even if you can't physically be there, will you dwell with them in prayer? Will you lift them up every day? There's some great stories out in the world. Uh, One of them I'm going to borrow from a guy named Nick Ripkin. He wrote a couple of books, uh, The Insanity of Obedience and The Insanity of God. And it's in The Insanity of God he's talking about this story, I think. Or maybe I heard it when he spoke one time. Anyway, he was in Somalia, and back when we, as the United States, when we had this war with Somalia, and it was such a horrid situation over there, he was he was the guy on the ground. And before they went there, they felt like God was kind of saying to go there. And before they went, they talked. They were talking with another missionary, and it, the, this guy had been in Somalia and had had to leave. Had been forced to because of the situation to get out. And he said, "I know this is crazy, but like he pulls out his pocket and he gives him this paper. Says these are five believers that we knew of." And we pray for him every day. And just in some crazy chance, if you saw one of them or ran into him somehow, let us know. You know, or let him know that we're still praying for him. And so Nick goes, he gets to Somalia. He's sitting around someplace and this big old Bushman comes up, big old knife on his belt. And he's like, are you the one? Have you come? And Nick and the guy with me are like, what is going on? And pretty soon another guy, and that guy leaves, and then another guy comes, and he's like, are you the one? Have you come? And it happens two or three times, and finally they're like, man, something's going on here. We need we need to do it. And so Nick follows or goes with the guy, and they go down to this alley, and all of a sudden he finds himself in this, this dead end, and there's five big Somali guys. And Somalis are known for violence, especially at that time. And they said, I said, are you the one that have you come? And, and they're like, what are you talking about? And they'd all had dreams to come. And if I remember the story right, they'd all seen Nick in their dream. And they said, we're believers. And we just want to know something. We want to know. Does God still care? Does anybody care for us? And Nick said he reached into his pocket and he pulled out this list that his friend had given him. And as he read those names, those were the five men. Those were the five men that God had sent, giving them this dream that Nick was coming. And they said, good, 
we know someone, we know God sees us and we know someone cares for us and they left. That was his only interaction with them. They needed to know that God loved them and cared for them. That family was laboring with them in prayer, even though they couldn't be with them in the hardship. And believe me, that was hard. They were laboring. It's hard for me to even imagine that faithful of prayer. Even though they, they couldn't see them, they didn't know where they were, they didn't even know if they were still alive, but every day praying for them. That's awesome. The last thing you need to disciple-make cross-culturally is you really need a lot of reliance on the Holy Spirit. God's going to do this or it's not going to happen. This is God's work, not your work. Even if you're competent, even if you have years of experience, it's either going to happen because God makes it happen or it's not. And so some of those things that we want to hold on so tightly to, we want to make sure they get it right. We have to turn loose a little bit and trust that the Holy Spirit will guide them. I remember one of my first short-term trips overseas, uh, there had been this, this church had started with this ethnic minority, and we were so excited about them. And, you know, go back the next year and hear a few stories and go back the next year. And when I finally moved there, the church was in shambles. It was falling apart, and eventually it did fall apart for a number of reasons. But I was talking with these guys, and at that time they had like four different meeting points, and he was bicycling to all four and teaching them. And I was trying to, man, you've got to raise somebody else up. You've got to let some, some other people lead and teach. Like, you can't just travel around like this. And he was like, but but they don't know anything. They they don't know the Bible well enough. And I was like, well, I mean, you guys didn't know the Bible well enough. You know, like, when you remember when you were starting out? How are you? And and he said, yeah, but we had the Holy Spirit. And I was like, yeah, and, and they do too. And I don't know if he was ever able to release that before it before the church imploded or not. But it's that reliance on the Holy Spirit, and it's true for us. Will we release people, release them to obey the Scripture in a little different way than we would think it should be obeyed? Will we release them to do something in a little different way than what it would be? One of the big things we ran over, ran into a lot over there was this understanding of authority, like, sorry, family structures and authority in the family, and who, you know, how do you respect your father? And what their version, what they need to do to respect their father and honor their father, which the Bible commands us to, is much, much different than what I need to do to for my father to feel honored. Much different. And sometimes I would kind of scratch my head and think, like, really? That seems, that seems horrible. I can't believe you would do that, or I can't believe they would make you do that. But for them, in their culture, like, that's what they needed to do to obey the command to honor their father. And rather than try to change the culture, which I might have liked to have done, that's crazy. Quit worrying about that. That's dumb. Rather than doing that, let them obey it and let Christ teach them how to walk in those circles in the way he would walk. Letting the Holy Spirit lead them, guide them, walk them through the scriptures. And for us, our job in many ways is to simply come along beside Jesus the Holy Spirit, and see what He's doing in their life and walk with them and help them find that next Scripture that helps them understand this problem that they're faced with, helping them walk through obstacles and hard times and praying with them, loving on them, encouraging them. The encouraging might be one of the most important things we do. Anyway, I hope that has been a help for you. And the next time you get a chance to minister cross-culturally, whether that's like a good long-term discipling relationship or whether it's you meet this guy randomly on the street somewhere and you wind up visiting with him a little while. I hope there's something there that gives you a little tool to help you minister more effectively. And that's all I have. Until next time, appreciate you guys. 
keep working on making disciples. It's such a slow process, but it grows so quickly when you do it. Keep making that investment in that one guy and that three guys. Keep making those investments, and they will pay off. Grow in it yourself. Grow in your ability to disciple somebody. But just keep doing it. If there's something we can do to help you, let us know. If you know somebody else that would benefit by listening to this podcast, do us a favor and let them know and give us a like on your podcast app or send us a shout out on Facebook. Until next time, we'll see you.